You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 17 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're happy to welcome back Father Jonathan Loop, the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy in Post Falls, Idaho, to discuss the preparations that were carried out for the Second Vatican Council. We'll take a quick look at the First Vatican Council and what effect that had on this Second Council, as well as why Pope John XXIII wanted to convoke this council. Then we'll take a look at the preparations themselves. As you'll see, they were very extensive, and beyond some troubling details, they were in fact very traditional and caused the Archbishop to be optimistic about the good that this council could accomplish. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous 16 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now we'll turn to our conversation with Father Loop. You're listening to the SSPX podcast and welcoming Father Loop back to the Crisis in the Church series. And it has been a little while since we've talked. How are things going up in Post Falls, Father? Well, on the whole, things seem to be going quite well. In some Good. ways, it seems like, uh, you know, the the uh, the difficulties that we've been living through as a result of all the things taking place with COVID are affecting us a little less than I think other places. But uh, so on the whole, very well. Good. Very good. Well, we wanted to have you back and, and you graciously volunteered to talk to us for an episode or probably two episodes about the preparation for the Second Vatican Council. We're going to be talking uh, with some of our other priests about Vatican II itself, the course and how it all went, um, but wanted to talk about the groundwork and how everything started because that's where everything started. It was before the Second Vatican Council itself. Um, so we've ended with the new theology, we have kind of that all set in terms of a theological standpoint, uh, but in terms of the council itself, um, there was the first Vatican council in the late 19th century, and then we have this second Vatican council. So where do things begin with this idea of having a second Vatican council, Father? In fact, that's a very good question. In large measure, it had been an idea that had been bounced around for some time, actually, um, as a result of the fact that the first Vatican Council that you mentioned, which I think would be interesting to go back to uh, briefly in a moment, sure. uh, ended rather abruptly. So it had only just begun effectively when the military forces of the Italian state invaded Rome, causing effectively the Council Fathers to have to end all their deliberations and um, more or less um, put that off. And so several times over the next uh, few decades, the idea resumed of possibly taking up uh, the work of that council where it had left off um, as early, in fact, as under Pius XI, you know, in the 1920s. He consulted with a few of the cardinals, one of whom was Cardinal Bilo, who was a uh, very famous conservative, one who uh, Archbishop Lefebvre looked up to quite a bit. And when Cardinal Bilo was asked his opinion about the advisability of doing a new council, he, for his part, said that that was actually a very bad idea. Apparently, he told uh, Pius XI then that uh, one cannot shut one's eyes. The new council was desired by the worst enemies of the church, namely the modernists, who, according to the most reliable evidence, are already preparing to take advantage of the estates general of the church to launch a revolution, a new 1789. And what he means by the Estates General, that's a reference back to the French Revolution. That's how it, that revolution actually started. It was, and then um, 
Well, it came up again under Pius XII, who himself, from what I understand, composed a commission to look into the question before finally deciding uh, on his own level to leave it and not to try to arrange the council. So it had been something that had been going around for some time. Since the First Vatican Council was kind of kind of died very quickly uh, because of this invasion, there were these rumblings about you know getting it back up and, and going again. Um, in terms of how a council is prepared for, um, could we maybe compare the First Vatican Council with the Second Vatican Council in terms of how how those were being uh, all the words I'm I'm trying to say no are, are totally poor English, like getting ready for. Um, mm-hmm. But could we make a comparison maybe between the two of how how those preparations were done first with the First Vatican Council and then with the Second Vatican Council? I would think so. And it's not surprising that we have a little bit of a difficulty phrasing how to talk about this just because it's something that we're not very familiar with. And at the same time, it's a huge process. So if you look at something like Vatican I initially, so that was the first council in 300 years, the last one being, of course, the Council of Trent in the late 15, well, mid 1500s. And it was something that um, Pius IX at the time wanted to call in order to really correct a lot of the errors that had been ravaging society in the mid-1800s. He began that by soliciting the opinion of a number of the cardinals in the Roman Curia to, to get their sense of whether they thought it was a good time, firstly, to do it. And for the most part, the vast majority of them responded, yes, we do think this is a good idea, we should move forward with this. And at that point, what he did was he established a preparatory commission composed of five cardinals uh, the next year in March of 1865. So right as our civil war is drawing to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and those cardinals would be then charged with putting together all the topics that might be conceivably considered at the council and to put them to, to actually compose schemas that might be considered. Um, what they would then do, and this is, this is going to be an interesting contrast with Vatican II, what they did is then they selected a few uh, bishops in different countries, only about 30 or 40, and sent them some inquiries asking what topics they thought would be good to discuss how to discuss them, etc., and at the same time swore them to secrecy at that moment. It's like, okay, look, we want your opinions, we want to get a sense of what you think would be um, worthwhile to consider, especially in the context, what errors you see as threatening the church. But at the same time, we don't want to, let's say, trouble souls by an indiscretion of announcing too early that we are considering this. Um, now, for the next few uh, years, Father, this- excuse me. Could I just ask real quickly? Yeah. The reason, again, the reason why the secrecy you said it's not to trouble souls is this because uh, so if if they're going to be taking up something to mm-hmm. be discussed, even the mention that they're going to be bringing something up might cause some people to think, oh, well, then this is up for debate. When in reality, Correct. it may or may not be. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And not only that, but also a, a premature. Um, revelation that these topics might be considered 
could open up the ground for a lot of pressure to be put on bishops or council fathers by, let's say, the press, which even at that time, it wasn't quite as powerful as what we might think of as in the um, in our own day and age or in the time in the Second sure. Vatican Council, but still it had an enormous prestige and weight that it could use to sway public opinion. Okay. Um, and if it was premature, that could uh, harm the liberty of the, the Council Fathers in approaching these matters. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. And the Pope's intention was, in fact, to try to convene the Council on the 1800th anniversary of the martyrdom of Saints Peter and Paul, so in 1867. He took that occasion in June of that year to say, oh, to announce publicly, we are going to do this, we've been doing preparatory work. And they were sufficiently prepared that by June of 1868, so that's a whole year later, the Pope judged that uh, it was time to convoke the council, which is, let's say, that official announcement, we will have a council, and I officially invite all those who um, have a right to be present, let's say bishops of dioceses, uh, heads of religious orders, etc., to come to Rome in the latter part of 1869. Um, and in that, he announced some of the purposes of the council, uh, which we might summarize as um, being the correction of modern errors to really root them out in a very let's say, definitive manner, when you have that whole Episcopal body of the Church around the Pope and supporting him in these proclamations, as well as to, to um, review the legislation for the Church, which is a common work of councils as well. Now, one last thing that might be of interest here to, to look at that um, that work of preparing Vatican I is how uh, non-Catholics were treated. But the way that the Pope at the time handled it is very intriguing. So he, he published a brief in September of 1868, so after the official convocation of the council, addressed to um, non-Uniate Orientals, in other words, Orthodox, those who are not in union with, with Rome or schismatic. Okay. And he made a point of inviting them to appear, so to be present at the council, not in the context of being uh, contributors, but to be present to see the deliberations, and of course, um, with the view that it might be an occasion of grace for them to return to unity, to, to okay. submit again to the church, kind of like you might say you had at the Council of Florence in the 1430s, um, where you had representatives of the Orthodox churches, uh, including, in fact, the Archbishop of Constantinople, the Patriarch of Constantinople present, and making their submission to the Pope. So it was kind of the hope that you had there. There was also, uh, published in that same month of September of 1868, uh, another brief um, that was addressed to Protestants, with a very important difference that, as individuals, not being in anything that even remotely resembled a vestige of the church, but being uh, congregations, and so not as um, not in any ways. And it was just announcing the council to them, and it wasn't inviting them to be present in any in any fashion. So it's just letting them know this is this is what's happening in Rome. This is when it's going to be, but we're not inviting you. You don't you don't get to have a seat at the party. Correct. More like. Okay. And, and even, of course, with the Orthodox, it wasn't that they had a seat at the party, but they were invited because, again, they have the orders, they have 
Uh, sure. For the most part, much of what remains. So this is the this is the preparation for Vatican One, and, and and like you said at the at the beginning, it's it's not a common thing to prepare for a council. So there's not like there's this blueprint of how it all goes, but we could say that this is probably the way to get a council started. We can mm-hmm. look at this and say this is this is a good blueprint for it. Correct. And there was a yeah, it was a very well prepared. Very there was a lot that in fact was uh, in the in the works to be accomplished had it not been interrupted by the political situation. Now, as we kind of saw earlier, because of the fact that it was interrupted, there had been lingering the thought of potentially returning to it. And so it lingers or it just doesn't happen or nothing happens with it until the election of John the 23rd you know, okay. in 1959. And in fact, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. When John the 23rd is elected, he's relatively old. In fact, so he, he was elected when he was 76, um, which at that time was fairly, you know, was not a spring chicken. Right. And a number of people viewed that he was just kind of a placeholder, which in some ways he was. Um, but he proved to be, in fact, in his own way, uh, quite energetic. And a very, very soon after his election, so he's elected in October of 1958. He's already uh, discussing the possibility of a council uh, with several cardinals, apparently, um, most notably Cardinals Ottaviani and Ruffini, who are members of the Roman Curia, and interestingly enough, are actually uh, conservatives, um, but for their part, they were very convinced that uh, a council would have been a good idea. Now... John the Twenty-Third, unlike Pius the Ninth, one major difference is that he he doesn't um, consult the cardinals about the advisability of a of a council. He simply, uh, after talking to these two, um, and then also Domenico Tarnini, who is the Secretary of State, um, announces it to a small number of the Roman cardinals on the feast of the conversion of Saint Paul. Uh, which is January 25th in 1959. So that's about three months after he's been elected. So it's very much in the beginning of his pontificate. He's not had any time to establish himself or really get a sense of the Roman Curias at all. And here he is announcing this, what would in fact be an immense and huge project. As we'll see, it was amazingly uh, intricate. And in fact, there was even more preparation than what we saw for Vatican I. I was just going to say, look, looking at it from with the scope of like American politics and, you know, with the new president, this is within the first hundred days that, you know, magical first hundred yeah. days that a yeah. U.S. president has, you know, popes have generally much longer periods of time to uh, to get work done. And even still, he's get, he's doing this in the first hundred days, which is astounding. Correct. Part of the reason, of course, that he was so pressing the issue is his own, his own age. He didn't think uh, that he would last very long, and so okay. he did want to push things through. And in fact, he only he'll only live or be pope for about four and a half years. He'll die okay. in the late spring, early summer of 1963, uh, after only one session at the first or second Vatican Council. Um, and so that's part that's part of why he's pushing so strongly. Although at the same time, it's clear that he has a something of a vision. A number of historians who comment on that initial announcement, they note that when he, done, when he made this announcement, 
um, the Cardinals were shocked. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, and uh, at least later in his testimony, apparently, um, and Pope John the Twenty Third is like, yeah, I was expecting that the Cardinals would be like, this is a great idea, and you know, come like, let's 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 do this. And apparently, not a single one of them said a single word. Like they're all wow. just completely silent. Um, and later on, John the Twenty Third explained that by you know saying, oh well, you know, it's just kind of this reverent um, uh, devotion, you might say, in the presence of this. And who knows? I mean, we don't exactly. I don't know for sure what was going sure. on in the minds of the men, but certainly what was. Uh, what is clear is that they were taken off guard. Like, we don't know what to say. You know, whether they were for it or against it, it's like we just have, um, don't know. Um, right. And interestingly enough, uh, you had a little bit of a hesitancy, clearly, uh, at least from a number of the members of Curia. Hmm. Now, in order to somewhat uh, apparently allay that, um, John the Twenty Third decided to call a synod of the clergy of Rome, which ultimately was going to be seen as something of a of a model for what the Second Vatican Council would be. So it's a small scale, not preparation strictly speaking, but example of what the Pope had in mind there. It's. In fact, if the methodology of the Roman Synod had been followed, I think the Second Vatican Council would have pursued a little bit more smoothly. Mm. So what happened was, is John XXIII put together a commission that served to put together what were called synodal acts, so which means certain documents that lay out um, reforms of discipline and insist on certain principles that are to guide the clergy of Rome. So those were prepared before the Senate itself. Okay. And those documents were then apparently when all the priests were gathered together, read out to them. It's okay so that they were just to hear it and um, be able to assimilate what was going on. And then, at, then they were given the opportunity to give written proposals or emendations, so changes that they thought would be appropriate for the document itself. So in other words, uh, apparently, at least according to Xavier Wren, there was not an open debate like you actually had later at the Second Vatican Council. Instead, you had presented the documents that were prepared in advance, and there was a chance there to give some minor modifications, which didn't rework the substance of the documents. And and so some, so much so that some of the let's say liberals um, basically looked at this and were a bit contemptuous apparently of it, saying that it was merely rubber stamping what had been prepared by those working under John the Twenty Third. Although some modifications were in fact adopted at the suggestion of the clergy of Rome. So in other words, there is reception for um, some feedback from the clergy. But it's somewhat limited. Okay. And then if we turn to the content of it, here's where it's actually very interesting. Because what the clergy of Rome actually um, decreed was quite traditional in character in many ways. So both, and, it, uh, and I'll read just a little bit of a quote from uh, Iota Uno, Iota Unum, a Romano Amerio, who talks a little bit about this uh, Roman Synod as well. And he says that this synod, this collection of the clergy of Rome, 
in fact proposed a very vigorous restoration at every level of ecclesial life. And the discipline of the clergy was modeled on the traditional pattern formulated at the Council of Trent. So in other words, they're looking back, and we'll see concretely in what ways. And he says that it was based primarily on two principles that had always been accepted in practice. The first is that of the peculiar character of the person consecrated to God, supernaturally enabled to do Christ's work, and thus clearly separated from the laity. Sacred meaning separate, which is in fact something that would be profoundly jettisoned as, as we continue on with the series and we look at what the consequences of that were. That idea of the priest being separate from the laity by virtue of his mission is um, both downplayed and in some instances completely dropped. You know, there's a famous phrase in the 70s and 80s, or mainly in the 70s, where a uh, priest is a man like everyone else, basically. Right. You know, he's not separate. And then secondly, and this follows from the first, is that of an ascetical education and sacrificial life, which is a differentiating mark of the clergy as a body. So in other words, the priests are expected to have a certain mortification and life of sacrifice over and above that of the average layman. And so some of the um, concrete recommendations were that of a return uh, to the vigor of holding a distinct ecclesiastical attire, especially the cassock, you know, so mm -hmm. that was reinforced. And over and above that, the, the tonsure was uh, reinvigorated, you know, and, and maintained. And in addition to that, um, the, <laughs> this is great, it's actually quite interesting, uh, that the, the clergy were forbidden from being present at public spectacles, you know, like mm -hmm. the opera or races, uh, or anything that had that very worldly character. You know, they were forbidden from being present there. Wow. And at the same time, the liturgical life was, um, let's say, restored to its traditional bearings. It's, it's quite fascinating to read this. Um, you know, so for example, um, because you have to understand the Rome, so you had a lot of experimentation going on in the 50s. So for example, Annabali Bunini, who would, of course, be very instrumentally involved in uh, drawing up the new Mass. He's a parish priest in the 1950s, in part because he'd been, uh, well, he, he plays a part in a parish. He's not simply a parish priest, but he plays a part in a parish, and he's experimenting in his Roman parish. And so at this synod, it's um, noted that the tabernacle in the traditional form and place must be maintained. Gregorian chant is ordered. Um, newly composed popular songs must be submitted to the approval of the bishop, and all appearance of worldliness is forbidden in churches. You know, and the altar itself, as well, has to be in its proper place. Um, and there's a few other things that are done, but it's all in that same traditional vein. You know, a lot of what the Roman clergy were emphasizing and what they decreed was quite traditional, in fact. There's, on the one hand, you know, what you see in the Roman Synod, where is this uh, sense of um, a traditional mindset, but which is going to be undermined at the same time by this, in fact, real openness to the world. With that being said, what I might propose is that we begin now to look at the formal preparations, or what I might actually refer to as the official preparations of okay. the Council itself. So again, okay. the Roman Synod 
had it in a way, a kind of, it was meant to be somewhat of a model, somewhat of a guidepost for what the Second Vatican Council could or should be. So this anti-preparatory work uh, began uh, on Pentecost in 1959, uh, so in May, when um, John XXIII establishes a commission headed by Cardinal Tardini and helped by uh, Monsignor Pericles Felici, who will come back, I'm sure we mentioned in the course of Vatican II, because he's kind of an important character there. Um, and working under the cardinal were ten members from the different Roman congregations, so the parts of the Curia. Now what that initially suggests is that the, the Curia, the Roman Curia, is going to have a huge role in the direction that um, the documents will go. So when I said they're gathering information, they're going to do it from three main groups. In the first place, the diocesan bishops throughout the world. So Cardinal Tardini, um, pretty early on, sends a letter to each and every bishop, diocesan bishop, soliciting their thoughts, their judgments on what the council should deal with. Um, so there's about 2,600 letters sent out. And in the end, they're going to get responses from roughly 2,000 bishops. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of information that's coming in. Uh, one, one of whom, of course, is Archbishop Lefebvre, you know, who was at the time uh, still the, the Archbishop of Dakar in Africa. Okay. So in that capacity, he received this letter, and he sent in his response with his recommendations. Um, the second group that they solicited information from were, were the Roman congregations themselves, you know, the Curia of Rome. Say, so what do you think in your professional capacity needs to be addressed? And then the third group was the rectors of Catholic universities and the deans of the theological faculties in Rome. You know, for example, Gregorian, the Angelicum. Okay, so it's it's a it's purely a just send us what you think we should be talking about, and you can exactly. name anything you want, and then we'll review it. Correct, and in fact, uh, what you just mentioned there, I think, is a very interesting and important point. Um, both Xavier Wren and um, Father Vilkin make a point noting that uh, Cardinal Tardini, in the original letter that he sends out, makes a point of refraining from giving any guidance, basically leaving it entirely free to the bishops to submit whatever they think might be of interest, uh, meaning that you get a whole range of different topics. Does this seem so, like a good idea to you, Father? I mean, to, to open it up? I mean, I can see it both ways. I can see it, well, mm -hmm. these are the bishops. They know what's happening in their diocese and on the ground let them give us suggestions. Um, well, it's interesting to contrast that with, uh, again, how they proceeded in Vatican I, because if you recall, uh, there they made a, a point of selecting um, certain bishops and soliciting information from them. So in other words, highlighting those, they had a greater uh, trust in their judgment and okay. in their sense. Um, and also at the same time, um, by the secrecy that, as we discussed earlier, not putting... Uh, the position of where people outside the church could put pressure on the bishops, or okay. even, let's say, you know, theologians within dioceses who might have a bishop's ear and be a little bit more inclined to progressivism, which of course will happen with some of the, the experts that will come to the Second Vatican Council. Sure. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, there's the advantage of, okay, what are people saying, the, the, but there are certainly disadvantages. One of which is just overwhelming amount of response. <laughs> it's a lot of work. 
Yeah, it's a lot of work, and it's really amazing how much they accomplished because um, they, um, in the end, they got, like I said, they got about 2,000 responses from, from bishops, which filled up eight volumes of, of publication, about um, totaling about 10,000 pages. So they have all that information, and they kind of codify it. And at that point, they begin this the second phase, which is now called the preparatory phase. Okay. Um, so they have all this information, and now they're going to start using it uh, as kind of a guide to begin formulating the actual documents which will form the basis of what is seen at the council itself. And to do this, uh, this begins in, again, at Pentecost. So it's interesting. Um, John the Twenty-Third made a very explicit point of trying to link the work of the Second Vatican Council to Pentecost, to the work of the Holy Ghost. He establishes the Central Preparatory Committee, which is going to be the most important in the work of preparation, which is contains about 120 members of, let's say, uh, Roman congregations, in, uh, cardinals, and even heads of religious organ, uh, congregations. And it's in that latter capacity that Archbishop Lefebvre will be a member of the Central Preparatory Commission, one of the 120 members there. Eventually, uh, you're going to have about 800 members of those 10 commissions uh, over and above the, the 100 members of the Central Preparatory Commission. So you actually have a fairly large body of people that are involved in this. And again, the purpose of these commissions is to draw up documents which will later be known as decrees or schemas. At the same time, and, at the, and let me make a comment here too, at the same time, and this will be important later on, that you have those commissions, you have three secretariats um, set up, which don't have the same formal purpose as the commission, so they're not charged with producing any documents that will be considered at the council, um, but they are, they are involved in the work. So you have one that's set up for a secretariat for the press, um, already, you have the idea in mind to conduct the council differently than Vatican I was with respect to the press. And then you have a secretariat for more technical things, um, coordinating, providing documentation, stuff like that. Then okay. the third one is the most interesting secretariat, and going to be the most important in the end. And that's the secretariat for Christian unity, um, which is going to have as its purpose orchestrating those efforts to try to promote ecumenical goals. Uh, and the, the head of this is going to be uh, Cardinal Augustine Bea, who, mm -hmm. um, as I'm sure some of the listeners uh, are aware, uh, would be later very intimately linked uh, with the, um, the push for the decree that would later become known as Dignitatis Humanae, in other words, the decree on religious liberty. But with him, you, you have some of the first initial huge you know, battles that occur between the traditionalists in the uh, Sexual uh, Preparatory Commission and the progressives, because not only does he produce a document that's dealing with, well, explicitly religious liberty, but Cardinal Ottaviani, the head of the Holy Office at the time, and then the, the secretary of the Theological Commission, uh, the most important of the commissions, also produced a document which was t titled On Religious Toleration. And, you know, to, to be the, the, t the text that would be presented at the council. And you, you had a huge fight between the two of them. 
And Archbishop of Fife was like, wow, this is, is really a striking thing. So you have these two cardinals, two princes of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, at loggerheads about this critical issue. And of course, Archbishop Feb noted as well that, you know, the, the document that our, uh, Cardinal Ottaviani produced had like 14 pages of footnotes, and whereas the one of uh, Cardinal Bea had zero, or at least like maybe one, or just very limited amount of footnotes. The point being is that uh, of the two is manifestly obvious, which was based on the prior tradition in the magisterium. Now the commissions, um, the various, those 10 commissions I mentioned, they produced by the time uh, the spring of, or the summer of 1962 comes around about 20, or sorry, 75 schema. Okay. Which in, then the Central Preparatory Commission takes its uh, rules out a few, combines a few, such that by the time the Central Preparatory Commission has done their work, there's only 20 schema, which are then intended to be presented to the Council Fathers. So and it's a lot of work. It's, it's a ton. You're taking that 10,000 pages, looking at it, working it out, and producing in the end, uh, over the course of two years, 20 schema, which are very uh, developed, and you, you can even access a few of them that have been translated into English. At that time, um, you had comments of several members of that commission. So, for example, a Monsignor Vincenzo Carbone, who um, is quoted by Father Ralph Vilkin uh, from the book The Rhine Flows into the Tiber, that no other council had had a prep preparation so vast so diligently carried out, nor so profound. And it's interesting because ultimately Archbishop Lefebvre also more or less shared that judgment. He um, commented that the council, as a result of the work of the preparatory commissions, was preparing to proclaim the truth in the face of the contemporary errors in order to cause them to disappear for a long time from the midst of the church. It was disposed to be a luminous cloud. He's referring to, or making a reference to like the, the cloud that covered um, St. Peter, James, and John on Mount Tabor. A shining cloud shining in the world, if it had used the preconciliar texts, in one in which one found a solemn profession of sure doctrine with respect to modern problems. So in other words, in his, in his judgment, on the whole, the work that had been prepared was solid and would have been a, a worthy matter for the church to promulgate at the council. Wow, that's fascinating. So all this work, all this, I mean, we can, we can say a few things about it in a very positive light. A, I mm -hmm. mean, the, the work was fantastic in terms of its depth and, and trying to get it all done, and they were very diligent. And, and B, the, the work is fairly traditional. You know, mm -hmm. at, at least at this point, uh, it's it's proclaiming the same things. There's some disagreements, like you said, between mm -hmm. Cardinals Bea and Cardinal uh, Ottaviani. But for the most part, this is this is heading in the right direction. Correct. We can say that for the most part it was. I mean, there's beyond the, like those disagreements we just mentioned. You also had some problematic things, let's say, in the, the document prepared on the liturgy, which was one of the few, um, let's say, commissions that was more populated by progressives and from liturgists and from Germany and from France okay. um, who are more in line with them. But on the whole, yeah, I mean, it was much more solid um, 
than one might have expected. It's kind right. of in line, that preparation at that point is in line with what we saw with the Roman Senate at okay. that point. Now, um, perhaps we're coming to a, a good spot to close today, but maybe just to, to conclude, um, I'd like to maybe to reference the, the bowl of convocation that John the Twenty Third um, issued at the latter part in the December of 1961. So that's the the official invitation to all the those who are meant to be council fathers to present themselves in Rome at a, a certain date. Okay. In here, um, the document is very intriguing because, on the one hand, you do have a fairly serious dose of realism in it, and which would, by itself, indicate some hope of a serious uh, and well-defined purpose of the Council. So, for example, the Pope comments that um, there's been a weakening in the spiritual life of the world. And he says, thence a weakening in aspirations towards the values of the spirit. Thence the tendency to seek only earthly pleasures, the technological progress brings so easily within the reach of all. Thence also a quite new and disturbing fact, the existence of a militant atheism operating all over the world. Hmm. It's a pretty strong statement, this yeah. militant atheism, which though it's not, let's say, explicit, is almost certainly a reference to the growth of communism, which uh, was um, both atheistic and militant in its attempts to spread itself. Now, had the Council been called specifically to address these issues and to give that true light to the world and to warn people from these dangers, we can say that it would have been a very good uh, and fruitful thing that would have, as Archbishop Lefebvre said, buried a lot of errors for a significant time. Mm -hmm. The only problem is, unfortunately, is that in addition to this official preparation, and perhaps what we can see next time, there was a lot of underground preparation behind the scenes that led to the basic um, undermining of all that had been positive in preparation for this. An underground uh, preparation that was unfortunately somewhat fostered by uh, John the Twenty Third, as we'll see when we start again next time. Wow, that's very interesting. Well, Father, thank you for giving us this this introduction, uh, and it's 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 very sad because at, at this point, you know, at this point in our conversation and at this point in all the preparations, this seems pretty good, and now people have to go and ruin it. This is why yes. we can't have nice things. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, thank you, Father. We'll be chatting again next time then about some of this underground preparation and then what leads up to the very beginning of the Council. Uh, and that will be very, very interesting indeed. Um, Father Luke, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Father. All right. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 17 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 18, we will welcome back Father Luke to finish our study on the preparation for the Council. This time we'll be looking at the underground preparations, the work that was being done by neo-modernists in order to undermine the good work that was about to be undertaken. 
If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you might think would enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.